I want to begin this morning with a question, an important question, and one that the scripture gives a great answer to. The question is this, what has God made? What has God made? Answers to that question are plentiful, aren't they? There are many right answers to that question. You can look at the book of Genesis, chapter 1, the creation account. And you could say that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the light. The light invaded the darkness. He created all the creatures of the sea. He created all the creatures of the land. And lastly, he created mankind, the crown and glory of his creation. One of the simple Simplest questions and answers that you can teach your children. The very beginning question to the children's catechism that we and I know some of you use in your homes. What has God made? The question goes like this. Who made you? And the little child responds, God made me. The follow-up question, what else did God make? God made all things, is the answer. It's not hard, nor not difficult to teach your children truth. It just takes discipline of yourself, perseverance, and over time, the Lord will take those simple and profound truths and ingrain them in the heart of your children But while all of those answers are right, I want to talk about something else that God has made this morning. And I want to consider with you what I suppose the scripture would present to us as being the greatest making of God or the greatest thing that he has made. One that if he had not made, we would be utterly and completely lost. We would be the objects still of God's fierce wrath. We would continue forever to be dead in sin and trespasses and without hope. Our only prospect being the vengeance of eternal fire and separation from the God of grace and glory. Now, obviously, as you see in front of you or in front of me, we are preparing ourselves to observe the Lord's table And this sermon is meant to to prepare us, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds to worship the Lord through commemorating the death of Jesus Christ and to show forth his glory in it, to proclaim proclaim his goodness. But it is also my hope that the Lord would use the truths that we will look at in Scripture this morning to bring many sons to glory. That there would be those who might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the truth that we consider. And so I would ask you, before we begin this morning, if you would just join me in prayer as we seek the Lord's help in both of those, both of those things. Father, we come this morning and we realize that the ordinance of communion, the Lord's table, 
is a great blessing that you have given your church, showing forth the shed blood and broken body of our Savior, commemorating his death, proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes. So, Father, would you use the truth that we will look at this morning to prepare our hearts for this ordinance? And, Lord, would you also be pleased to use this same truth in the heart of any unbelieving? Would you use it for their ultimate good? Create in them, Lord, what they do not have so that they can, in truth, as we have just sung, stand before you empty-handed, yet possessing all things. So, Father, we ask for your help in these things, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to specifically look at verse 21, but in doing so, we're going to have to look at several other verses. But let me read verse 21 and remember the question, what has God made? The greatest thing that God has made is found in this 21st verse, though we don't often consider it when answering that question, the verse simply reads, For he, speaking of the Father, made him, speaking of the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what has God made? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The greatest making of God. The eternal counsels of God are behind this verse throughout. We're going to speak of some of those as we go through this morning. But let me just point out an obvious textual variant. And a textual variant is, why does the New King James read differently than, say, the New American Standard or the English Standard Version or the King James Version? All transla- most of the translations, there's two different manuscripts, really, that the Scriptures were translated from. And so if your Bible leaves out the word for at the beginning of verse 21, you probably have a notation there in the margin or somewhere in your references that tell you that this was not contained in the early, earliest manuscripts. And that's why if you read New American Standard, that word's not there. It just abruptly jumps right in and says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. And as you read this fifth chapter, and as it's building and building to this climax in verse 21, I think that that's most likely the way that we should read it. Now, the word for being supplied for us doesn't alter the meaning of the text of the verse at all. It kind of leads you naturally into it. And that's the pattern that we're used to with Paul, isn't it? He lays down doctrine and then he therefore gives a practical application of it. But if you were to leave the four off and read down through the fifth chapter, you get to this end verse and it's like this truth just hits you right in the face. He made him who knew no sin, 
to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to speak about three things out of this verse. The initiative of the Father. He made. Secondly, the willingness of the Son. Though it's not explicitly said here in this verse, it is everywhere implied that the Son of God willingly gave Himself for His people. We're going to see how that was foretold or prefigured in Isaac out of Genesis chapter 22. And then the third, we're going to see the righteous result of the Father's initiative and the Son's willingness. Now, think of how great the result might be when God, the Lord God of heaven and earth, when He actively initiates and when the Son willingly places Himself in the activity that the Father has begun, the result has to be something glorious, right? And the result is indeed absolutely glorious. So we're going to look at those three things in turn. But before we get there, I think the force and the weight of this verse is going to come as we build our way to it. Now, chapter 4 and 5 contain tremendous truths. And I realize it's always sometimes folly to say what your favorite portions of the scriptures are, but certainly 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 are some of my, my favorite portions of scripture. There are some tremendous truths that are laid down for us here in these verses. And I want to rehearse a few of those before we get down into the 21st verse. The first thing that I want to bring your attention to is in the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. And I I almost spent our entire time this morning on this verse. But let me just read it. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What this verse does, what Paul does in in this verse, is he equates, don't miss it, he equates the creating power of God in Genesis chapter 1, speaking everything into existence and then pronouncing it good. Paul places on an equal level the creating power of God in making the light of the glory of the knowledge of of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine in the blackness of a heart dead in sin. Do you see how those things correlate to one another? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light that invaded the darkness. He did so by speaking a word. Let me read the verse again. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some of you are familiar with Albert Barnes' notes on the New Testament. You can read them for free on the Internet. Or you can probably buy his notes in book form 
at a very discounted rate these days. But here is what he says on this verse. It's so helpful. He says, there is an exertion of divine power in the conversion of the sinner as really in the act of creating the world out of nothing. And that this is as indispensable in the one case as it is the other, end quote. It's a mouthful, but what he is saying is there is the same activity of God in the conversion of a sinner that there was in the creating of all things. So let me ask you a question based upon that realization out of the sixth verse. How great is your salvation? How great is the salvation that God has given to you? In the black deadness of your heart, just as Lazarus, God has called you forth. And come forth you did. Verse 15 of this same chapter 4, we're told that all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So as you just consider the truth of verse 6, the activity of God in your life and bringing you to faith, causing light to shine when once there was only darkness. One of the greatest ways that mankind can rob God of glory is to credit himself in any way, shape, or form for his own salvation. You realize that? Can a man rob God was the question that Malachi asked, right? Yes. One of the ways that we rob God the greatest is to say that we had anything to offer for our own salvation. We had nothing. And the fact of the matter is, if God in grace and mercy had not intervened, we would have died in our sins. So God has called us forth all to his glory. He has given us what we had not possessed. Light has shown in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the first verse that I want to point out as we build to the 21st of chapter 5. And then there are what I call the knowing verses. And I call them that because each one of them are prefaced by Paul saying, this is something that I know. And as you live the Christian life, these things are going to need to be brought forward in your mind very often. You're going to, to, to need to mark. Perhaps in your Bible they're already marked because you've come to these verses often. It's not unusual for me at all in preaching a funeral sermon to go to these verses and remind people this is what we know. In the face of death, in the face of grief, in the face of pain, in the face of suffering, we must be reminded of the things we know. And so if you look in verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. You continue reading down in the first verse of chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, and here he's referring to his physical body, he says, if it is destroyed, and let me remind you, your physical tent, your body will 
be destroyed. Some of you are saying it's destroyed already. It's decaying. It's becoming more and more corrupt. But there's a tremendous truth that is embedded here in these verses. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. Notice the contrast. A tent that is to be put off and a building from God. Sermon on the Mount, the word is mansion that Christ is preparing. If you go down to the sixth verse of this fifth chapter, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in this body, this tent, that we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Things that we must know. We skipped over one. It's found in the 16th verse. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. You need to know that. Your outward man is perishing. But the inward man, day by day, being renewed by grace. The last in verse 11 in chapter 5. Not only do we know these great gospel truths, we know the terror of the Lord. Verse 11, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Persuade them to what? Persuade them to be reconciled to God. You know, one of, the, one of the great truths of the fifth chapter is that the Lord God of heaven and earth is willing to be reconciled to you. He's willing to be reconciled to those who have fallen through sin have fallen with Adam into sin by transgressing the holy command of God, he is willing to be reconciled to you. Lord willing, everyone will have an ear to hear that truth. God is not aloft, distant, and unwilling to be reconciled. Perhaps you have a family member or a relative who was offended by something that you did in time. And since that period in time, they have stood far removed from you, completely unwilling to be reconciled. I realize that's a grievous thing and it happens far too often. But but think of the greater offense that mankind has offended God by transgressing against a simple command, falling into sin, and logic would tell us that God would be just. He would be completely holy if He stood apart from us and was completely unwilling to be reconciled, reasoning, I gave you such a simple command and you transgressed it. Now go die in your sin. But that's not the God of the Bible at all. The God of the scripture is full of grace, he is full of mercy, and he is willing to be reconciled. He has done everything necessary for reconciliation. Of his own initiative, which we're going to to look at more, more closely here in just a moment, he has initiated everything for reconciliation. He has placed the gospel in mouths all around you. 
Paul says that he is an ambassador for Christ. And in fact, he equates all believers as ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the verse immediately before the 21st verse. I want to read it again and I want to read it to you. And I hope you took that personally. Sometimes preachers are accused of speaking directly to people. Let me be accused of that rightly right now. I'm speaking directly to you, whoever you are. As an ambassador for Christ, as though God were pleading through me, I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's willing. What we have before us represents the body and blood of Christ that has brought this reconciliation. So if you're in verse 21... This is our focus, and it gives the greatest answer to the question, what has God made? Let's look at the initiative of the Father. For He made Him. You realize there was no coercion upon God to do this. There was no one pleading for this to happen. There was not a single individual nor a group of people that had mustered and gathered themselves together to pray for this activity of God. The initiative of the Father was determined in eternity past in His eternal counsel before time began. He took this initiative. And we read a host of verses in the scriptures that would back up this point. The most obvious being the 16th verse of John 3. For God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. And there we see the initiative and the willingness of the father to give. To provide a way of reconciliation. One of the greatest expressions of this is found in the 24th verse of Romans chapter 3. Let me read it as you listen. This is just after the declaration that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, let me speak directly and personally to everyone. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That applies to you. It applies to me. I realize sometimes we hear great truth and we immediately want to cast it off on someone else and say, man, I wish they would hear that. We all do that, right? And so just here, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the truth of the 24th verse says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And so if you want to ask the question and give a biblical answer to the question, 
How did God make His Son to be sin? We don't have to conjecture. We don't have to make up an answer. We can go right to Romans 3 and verse 24 and read, God set Him forth as a propitiation. And that is, that is a word that you need to know. Don't shy away from the great theological words of Scripture. We must know them. Our children must know what this word means. What does it mean that God propitiated? It means that He appeased His own wrath. He, he satisfied His own just requirement. The blood of Jesus, the broken body of Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. We sang that old hymn this morning. I realize it's set to a new tune or whatever, but it's an old hymn with old words. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That is the simplest way to explain or understand the gospel. The Father, completely holy and just, took the initiative to satisfy himself, his own just and righteous requirements, to look upon Christ as being sin, and then pardon all those who would come in faith to that Savior. What a great old hymn that is. So how did the Father make the Son sin? We're gonna, we have to understand that phrase rightly. And as with all truth... Anytime there is a great expression of truth in short form, like the 21st verse of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, anytime there is that great expression of truth in short order, that is a breeding ground for heresy. You change one nuance of this truth and you've become a heretic like that. How do you understand the phrase, the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin? It's important is how we give answer to that question. But before we give answer to that question, I want us to look at the second aspect of this tremendous truth, and that is the willingness of the Son to be made sin. For the sake of time, we're not going to go back and read from Genesis 22, but I do want to bring that to your memory. You've read the account probably very often of how Abraham took his son up on the mountain, and the son says, Father... I see the knife, I see the fire. There's something missing. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's response. God himself would provide a lamb. And lo and behold, just before Abraham would take the knife to slay his son, he was stopped and caught by the horns in a thicket behind him was a ram. Behold, the Lamb of God provided. But what we oftentimes miss there, though we don't know the specific age of Isaac, some have supposed what his age may have been. Needless to say, he would have been old enough to put up a good struggle if he had been of a mind to but yet we find him laying on the altar. Willingly so. 
Do you see what trust he had in Abraham as his father? He asked the question and he got an answer and then he proceeded. I want you to see how that is a foreshadowing of Christ of whom John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son was a willing participant in your redemption. He was under no coercion. Just as the Father was not coerced to initiate, the Son was not coerced by the Father, but in their covenant before time began there was an agreement that he would come and propitiate the father's just wrath against a sinful people the willingness of the son does not mean that he didn't deeply feel the weight of being made sin That's an important point to make. When we refer to Jesus, there is a a, a nice theological term that we use called the hypostatic union. And all that term refers to is the combining of the nature in Christ being fully God and fully man, or as I have begun to refer to it, fully God and really man. He was a real man. He was both. And in the gospel records, what we see is the humanity of Christ dealing with the realization that his father, whom he had only to this point had an eternity of of a loving relationship, being the beneficiary of the father's love towards him, this secret relationship of, of only the purest of fellowship. What we begin to see in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus sweating great drops of blood, asking those weary and sleepy men to be watchful and pray along with him, what we see there is he beginning to realize the full weight of being made sin. And he prayed. If there's any way to take this cup Remove it from me. But then he, at the end of that prayer, you know what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was a willing sacrifice. So when we go back to the verse, back to the verse, we see in verse 21, He, the Father, made him the Son. We need to deal with this phrase, who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was sinless. This season of the year, we often focus on the early chapters of the gospel, particularly Matthew and Luke, where the details of Jesus' birth are given every detail in the scriptures carefully, with great precision. Outlines and details for us that he was in every way Perfect. 
without sin, no mark, no blemish. He was the spotless lamb. There was nothing lame, poor, sick, or blind about him. He was in every way perfect. He knew no sin. He had never sinned. And he will never sin. He was completely and wholly separate and sanctified unto God as being the sinless Savior. He knew no sin. But the verse tells us that the Father made him to be sin. Or some translations leave out the words to be. You'll notice that they are in italics, at least in the New King James, referencing that they are added to make the verse read a little more understandably. But if we leave those out, he made him who knew no sin, sin. That does not mean that the father made the son actually commit an act of sin. That would be heretical. Let me give you a mouthful by George Smeaton, who says, the son was never the object of the father's loathing or aversion, even when he was forsaken. He never was what the sinner inevitably is, and that is abhorred, abominable, because a distinction could always be made between the only begotten son, the righteous servant, and the sin-bearing substitute. That distinction has to be clearly made. Jesus Christ was at both At the same time, the righteous servant of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and at the same time, the sin-bearing substitute. Those lines were never blurred. They were never crossed. The Father did not make the Son actually commit sin. What He made Him was to be reckoned sin, or to be considered as Sin itself. Do you wonder why Jesus quoting out of the Messianic Psalm on the cross asked the question just before his death, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt the full weight of being made sin. Why did such strange things happen at Calvary? Why did the graves open? Why did it become dark at midday? Why did all of those things happen? The full weight of sin was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ there. The initiative of the Father had run its full course and the willingness of the Son had run its full course. They combined at Calvary. The Son being made sin. You need to understand this. God considered His sinless, perfect Son to be sin. What's the result? Notice these two words in this verse. Don't miss them at all costs. Don't miss these two words. For us. This is the great exchange. The greatest. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You can't understand the gospel rightly if you don't understand substitution. 
substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement, someone standing in your place and you reaping the benefit as if you were standing there yourself. To understand substitution rightly, we must understand that only one party dies on behalf of another. Substitution would cease to be substitution if both parties die. But Christ died a real death. And we know how the gospel records the gruesome details of his crucifixion. He died a real death in our place so that we might really live. He died so that we may walk away free. Free and clear. No longer justly accused. What's the result? How does the the verse relay the result to us? For us that, or so that, we, we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We need to understand how, how the verse uses the word righteousness. It doesn't mean that we become immediately righteous to the degree that we are sinlessly perfect. The scriptures also detail for us the doctrine of remaining sin. We have not yet been fully released from the presence of sin. The penalty is gone. Its power is gone. But the presence of sin is still a real thing that the believer struggles with. So righteousness here is not being practically holy. Righteousness here is a forensic word. It's a word of legality. It's a word that speaks of your standing before God in terms of justice. We have become the righteousness of God in Him. The word expresses our relation to the law of God, not our moral condition. It bears witness to that which has satisfied the demands of the law. We have become the righteousness of God in Him. So do you see how all three of these things compile together? The Father's initiative, the Son's willingness, and the great result, the righteous result. Perhaps it's it's best to state this truth this way. Just remember this one sentence. He who knew no sin was made sin. So that we who knew no righteousness could be made righteous. That's the beauty and the truth of the gospel. He who knew no sin was made sin, considered sin by his father, reckoned to be sin. So that we who knew no righteousness could become righteous. There's scandal on both sides of that, isn't there? The scandal on the first side 
knowing no sin, yet considered sin. The scandal on the other side, knowing no righteousness, yet considered to be righteous. That's the beauty of the gospel. So in the supper, we commemorate the bleeding, the suffering, the dying of Christ as his father and ours made him as our elder brother. As he reckoned and considered him to be sin for us in our place as our substitute, standing where we should have been standing, hanging where we should be hanging, bleeding blood that should be dripping from our bodies. And he did so willingly. That's what these, the elements of this ordinance represent. The body and blood of Jesus. His body broken and his blood shed for you. What is the greatest thing God has made? He made his own son to be sin for us. That we might be the righteousness of God in him. This is the greatest working or making of God in all of Scripture. One question before I close. Will you be reconciled unto God? If you're not in Christ, then you are at enmity with God. If you are not in Christ, you are an object of the wrath of God. If you are not in Christ, the scriptures say that after that appointment of a man to die once, there will be judgment for which you will have no advocate. For which there will be no one speaking for you. What a folly and what a shame. Not to come to Christ in faith, believing, trusting in his blood shed for you. I pray you will do so. Let's pray. Father, we come to this ordinance, Lord. We, we come in faith. We come with thanksgiving. We come in humble gratitude. We come considering the cost that our Savior paid so that we might be the very righteousness of God in Him. Father, may this ordinance have real meaning for us. May it not be just something we do out of mindless repetition. We pray that the Spirit of God would attend the commemoration, the memorial service of the shedding of the blood of Christ on our behalf. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.